Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Caption Life, a podcast that covers how comics and pop culture affect life and society, and vice versa. Uh, from deep in the heart of Texas, I'm Kevin, and I'm joined today by my good friend, Sean, in Indiana. Hello, everyone. Hey, before we get started, don't forget to smash that subscribe button on whatever major podcast platform you listen to, and you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at Caption Life. And if you like what we're doing, give us a shout out or tag us in your post. You can also find us at podpage.com backslash the caption life to find out more about us and where you can find our podcast. Uh, today's episode, we are going to uh, do something a little wondrous. Okay, we're going we're gonna to talk about <laughs> Wonder Woman 1984, the recent sequel to the, uh, the first major, uh, I guess, motion picture, superhero motion picture that featured a, a female protagonist. Which came mm-hmm. out in 2017. The long-awaited sequel, Wonder Woman 1984, was actually released uh, to theaters and HBO uh, Max on Christmas Day, and mm-hmm. uh, we've both watched it. And we're gonna we're gonna talk about it and talk about how how where it sits in the pantheon of of superherodom and and entertainment. And uh, tell us what you, what we think about it. Yeah. Um, before we get started, Sean, how did you watch it? Did you actually go to a theater or did you watch it at home? Uh, we watch it at home at, um, through HBO Max, which is where all the WB and DC comic stuff is going to be released. So, yeah, we watch it at home uh, on Christmas Day, um, but at night once uh, we were done with celebrating Christmas and Ryan went to bed and everything. So we watched it. Uh, actually, we started watching it Christmas Day, and then uh, my fell asleep. <laughs> Not because of Wonder Woman, but... So say like, it doesn't bode well. I know. Well, it, it, it's really because the night before, I only had like three hours of sleep. And so by the time it got to nighttime, I was just crashed. So it's like, it doesn't matter what movie was on. It could be my favorite movie. I would have fell asleep. But Christmas Eve is a tough time to be a dad. You got to put batteries in stuff or put together yeah. bicycles or trampolines or whatever it is that Santa Claus brings. I know. It's, well, uh, just, it's, it's nuts. It's crazy. Yeah, well, and it's late. Lately, I just haven't been able to fall asleep before two o'clock in the morning, so that's been part of it too. Then you know, Riley gets excited and comes down, and you know, wants to open up the presents, and so I think I only got like three or four hours of sleep that you, night before. So you've got quarantine insomnia. I know it's I, which is weird because like when I was working, I didn't have that. I I had no problem falling asleep at ten, but like since we've been on break, um, I just yeah, I don't even know what day it is yeah. today. So. <laughs> right, I know. <laughs> I know that I have to go back to work in a few days, but it, yeah. it, I wouldn't surprise me if I actually over, overshot it and forgot to go back on the first day. Right. Yeah. So how about you? Yeah, we did the same thing. We watched it. Uh, my wife actually surprised me for Christmas and our anniversary for a little romantic getaway. Uh, so it was a few days later that I came back and watched it. But we watched it sitting on the, the safe confines of our comfortable reclining couch. Uh, and uh, I'm not I'm not mad. That that they that they do it that way. I mean, I would have gladly spent money to go to a theater under normal circumstances. Going to right. the movies as a family is something that we really love to do. And uh, I want to say that in 2019, we went to the movies probably at least a dozen times, like once a month. Right. Um, yeah. We're big movie even, goers too. Yeah. Even in even in the uh, in 2020, we went. To, I went to two movies in in February. I, I took my kids to see Sonic the Hedgehog and. And uh, and while my wife is out of town and then uh, right before um, the pandemic hit, we went to see Onward in the movie theater a week early because mm-hmm. um, because we we were actually we were going to um, we went to Disney World the week of spring break and we were actually on the Millennium Falcon ride when the world fell apart. Right. Um, 
and we found out that we I remember going, that. I remember you texting us about that. We weren't going back to work next week. So, um, so yeah, it was it was crazy. We we hadn't gone to a movie all year, but, and I would have gladly paid to see Wonder Woman um, in, in the theater. But we we watched it from the safe confines of of our own home. And uh, I gotta say, it was it wasn't uh, it wasn't everything that I thought it was gonna was hoping to, it to be. But it was it was good. I liked it. I didn't love it. Mm-hmm. What about you? Yeah. Initial thoughts. Yeah, so, um, it, you know, talking about the movie theater and the uh, streaming model that they did with this, yeah, I, I find it really interesting. What's interesting is that it still made money um, on the movie. Like, I was just looking something up in the article, and there was a headline that said that um, that was posted yesterday that has grossed uh, about $100 million, which I, I know, like, for movies, it's always interesting to hear them say, like, you know, this this is a really low figure <laughs> for money when we're like, man, I'd love to have that kind of money. $100 million actually, right? is a lot of money. Yeah, so it'd be so it's kind of interesting to see how if this ends up being a future model for other places, um, how they're going to make money when they're also releasing this. I don't know if it's just like they have a deal with HBO where they get a portion of the profits of like how many streams they get or something like that. It'd be really interesting to see. I, so. I do know that um, that they gave first off they they gave Gal Gadot a huge pay raise for the mm-hmm. second film because she only made like three hundred thousand dollars for the first one. She made $10 million for the second one. And they also made her a producer on the film, which meant that she was mm-hmm. entitled to back end profits and right. Warner brothers paid her and Patty Jenkins, both $10 million up an extra $10 million up front to promote the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, and it's existence on, on the streaming uh, HBO max, because that was what they were likely to lose. Had it not had a normal wide release. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, and so at least they're they're figuring out a, a formula to to make that work. I just I without like commercials and whatnot. I mean the subscription thing is the only way that they're 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 making money. So it's it's mm-hmm. interesting. I know that in our in our episode where we talked about what we were looking forward most in twenty twenty one, that was the thing that I was most interested in seeing is how all of this pans out with their new re- release model. Uh, and still, like it'll it'll be it'll be um, interesting to see how if these first couple of big films that they're releasing onto the streaming service make uh, an impact. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it'd be really interesting to see, um, you know, what the model is. Cause I know, um, you know, everyone was asking for the same thing for black widow when Disney did the premier access and everything. And um, they have said that, you know, this is kind of like more of a one-time thing. It's not going to be a future model, but I mean, I don't know if, if they figure out a way to be able to make even more money by offering both of those, I'm sure, you know, they'll, make it work too. So, but my, so my thoughts on Wonder Woman 1984. So it wasn't as good as the first one. I loved the first one. I thought the first one was great. I thought, yeah, I thought overall this was good slash. Okay. I I give it a three out of seven. (laughs) Weird. Seven star rating. (laughs) Right. Um, But I, I think the three things that really stood out for me in terms of what I found like really interesting in, in terms of like, directing and cinematography and writing the script. The first one was I never really got a good sense why they chose 1984. Um, They never really go into it. They just said, you know, 
they just kind of jumped right into 1984. But when you watch the movie from beginning to end, like it didn't have to be in 1984 that I, I thought, and I don't know if they're just, you know, playing on the trend of nostalgia that everyone has right now. Um, but it's just, you know, in 1984, I mean, that's the year I was born. So it's like, I, you know, like that is, is a special year for me personally. Um, so I was excited to see like my birth year is, is in the title, but just watching this, I'm like, I don't know why, they chose 1984 or why it even had to be historical at this point. I think Patty Jenkins alluded to the, to it in an interview recently that 1984 seemed to be the height of like Western civilization. Right. Like, um, and also I think there's, there's a certain amount of, uh, like plot, the certain amount of plot that you can, um, you can bend your head around if modern technology doesn't exist. You know, like, you know how many times, like, Home Alone wouldn't work in in modern times because everybody's got a cell phone, right? right. So, well, that's so, why horror movies have to like figure out how to eliminate cell phones. Either battery right. died or they broke the phone or something like that, right? But I mean, even then, I I, was, I would argue that with the way that the movie unfolded, especially with um, with Max trying to communicate to the entire world, like you could do that even more readily with um, oh, and, the and they act technology like, now, yeah. And, and one of the one of the major like things that drives his character is greed and they want right. to act like that, that doesn't still exist. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah. <laughs> like so people are as greedy as hell in 2020. I, I know. And, so and it, selfish. Look at the people that, that won't wear a mask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just, so it just, it, for me, it was just fascinating. Like why 1984? I don't think it had to be 1984. It, and it's not like a, a ding against them or anything like that. I just, I just remember just thinking at the end of it is like, why did it have to take place in 1984? Like it made sense why they did 1916, uh, 1917 in the first one, you know, but, um, but yeah, this one, I'm just like, I, I, it's near, neither here or there. It's not a big deal. It's just something I found interesting with that. Um, the other thing is the, but the action and and the costuming in this one, I felt like was really odd. And and I don't know if it's because they're trying to make it flashy like the era that was in. But I know I just noticed that Wonder Woman's costume was a lot shinier and a lot more glamorous than what it was in the first one. Where the first one was like it was an actual BDU like battle dress uniform where mm-hmm. it was weathered. It was more for functionality as opposed to look. Whereas in this movie, it's definitely a lot more for the look. And I don't know if they were just trying to set up for the contrast between um when she first starts and sees this, you know, goddess that can can't be stopped to once you made that wish and it's the monkey's paw um coming into play that now she's starting to get weaker and she can't be as strong or as uh invulnerable as she used to be. I don't know if they're trying to make a contrast with that, but it's again, I feel like you can make that contrast without having to amp up the costume with it. And and the and the action scene where she like glides and uh jumps around and stuff like that, like it just seemed a lot more um, you're talking about when she's Spider-Man's on lightning? No, not that one. Like at the very beginning when she's in the mall and she's, oh, okay, okay. And she's fending off the robberies, right? Like there's a scene where she goes from one end to the other in like a half a second. But it's like instead of it feel like it's a natural movement, it's just more like it almost looked like, you know, they you could tell they edited where they just made her glide and with like like hardly any sort of effort or anything like that. It just felt it looked and felt unrealistic to me. And so I just wasn't as impressed with the look of the action in this movie as I was in the first one. Yeah. Um, there, there were a lot of instances for me where, um, the wire work for the stunts and stuff was just, it was, it wasn't as 
fluid. Like you could, it's understand that superheroes defy the laws of physics, but what was going on didn't seem natural. Right. Exactly. Like, cause at least like in the other movies, like what they try to do is at least kind of make it believable in the world of physics that we live in, as opposed to like, well, this person is like not of this world. And so they can do whatever they want. And, you know, to excuse that, which again, the first movie, they did a good job of making it look a lot more realistic with the movement. Whereas this one, I just felt like it, it wasn't as realistic as the, as the first movie. Um, the last thing I'll tap on, and I know these are all negative things and I, I don't mean to be negative. I mean, it was definitely a good movie, but I just felt like it wasn't great. And I, I feel like it's one of those things I just wouldn't really maybe watch again, unless, you know, if some years have passed, it's just not one of those that I would immediately want to watch again. But right. the, the last piece I want to comment on is, um, Pedro Pascal's character of Max, um, Lord, and his role as a father and how it plays into the whole storyline. I, I got mixed feelings on that. Um, okay. I will I will say that this is a, both a positive and negative in that I feel like the writing and Pedro Pascal did a great job of um, evoking emotion from when you – and I don't know if this is because I'm a father or if he did just a great job. I think it's both because I, I haven't had this sort of reaction as a father in, in other movies I've witnessed. But mm-hmm. when you see him at the beginning, like, wants to do anything for his son, and then you see that relationship worsens as he's getting more power, and then, like – by that point, I'm just remember as as a dad, I'm just thinking like, you know, God, he's a terrible father. Like, I don't like this guy at all and anything like that. And then towards the end of the movie is was supposed to be this whole redemption quality of it. But I feel like it's almost like the um, it's almost like the problem that Charles Dickens had with Scrooge is that how does somebody just instantly instant instantaneously change from a moment like that? And, and at least Scrooge had like, you know, three days or, or a night to to do that. Whereas he did this in a, in a small series, like in probably like five, maybe even not even that, like three minutes where he saw his son is, you know, in danger and he was causing all that danger. Um, I, I just find it like really, I don't know. I, I, I just didn't find it convincing enough because the more greedier guy, like, I mean, you saw that he was still kind of felt bad that he, dismiss Alistair away mm-hmm. like that, but he still like went on with what he was trying to do. And so I felt like that was kind of, and I, I feel like they didn't do a good job of, of developing that a little bit more in terms of making a pinnacle. I feel like that was just like the way they had to resolve it. Cause they couldn't quite figure out how to do it maybe. Right. Um, but I felt like, you know, that, and maybe it was something that they had developed and it got left on the cutting room floor, but I felt like the development of that redeeming quality, like it was nice to have, but I felt like the development was still missing and that was kind of either rushed or pushed together. <laughs> so that so. was one of the things that I, I wrote down too, to talk about <laughs> like, it's okay. So like you said, his performance is amazing. Like, right. Um, his he goes from very suave debonair character at the very beginning mm-hmm. and into this frantic um like you know every decision is by the seat of his pants kind of like just trying to keep it together until he can realize this ultimate power that he has um and i and then i read that he that he he based his uh performance a little bit on like nick cage which right. Which totally fits, like, when you see it in retrospect, you're like, yeah, it was, like, a very frantic, Cajian um, performance. Yeah. Uh, but the other thing that, that they don't address is, like, he created a lot of, like, international havoc. And they yeah. don't, like, at least at the be- at the end of Superman 1, uh, like, I guess, and I can't remember if it happens to 2, but in, I know in Superman, like, in 1978, 
Superman delivers Lex Luthor to the prison. Yeah. Like <laughs> Maxwell Lord went unpunished on screen. And and I don't know. I'm I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's probably good for Pedro Pascal's character that they showed him being redeemed right. without without like the the reality of punishment that came along with it because right. he is very much in hero mode now with his other, with his other work that he's doing. Like, you know, mm-hmm. he's got the Mandalorian and he just did another like superhero kind of thing for Robert Rodriguez on Netflix, which my kids have watched. I haven't watched mm-hmm. um, called we can be heroes. Um, and so like, he's, he's big in this household, but like, if he were like, if he ended that film and like, as a legitimate bad guy, that might like right. tarnish his, uh, Tarnish his reputation. However, it does go to show, like the 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 depth and the the broadness of of the things that he can cover. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um. Look, I I can put some positive spin on this. I mean, like I'm in the same mm-hmm. boat as you. I I enjoyed the film. I didn't. I liked it. I didn't love it. Um. But here's 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 the things that I take away from it. I I really think that Gal Gadot is is Wonder Woman. Like just the mm-hmm. same way that Christopher Reeve was Superman. Or that Hugh Jackman was Wolverine. I think that she really um, embodies that character now. Right. Um, I, I think it doesn't hurt that she's maybe one of the most five beautiful women in the history of like all humankind. <laughs> right. Um, and that's one of the things that like my wife and I, as we watched it, we were talking about like like she's just so naturally pretty in so much of the in so much of the way that they film her that it's it's almost like she's an alien. Uh, mm-hmm. Like she's not of this, not of this world. Um, well, and I think the fact that she's uh, from Israel mm-hmm. kind of made makes that connection between like like the I don't want to you know dive into too much relig- religiosity or anything like that. But that's a good word too. I like, I'm going to use that in the <laughs> yeah. future. Religiosity. But no, I, I, I think it I'm, makes that connection with Wonder Woman being a goddess and her being from Israel and having that connection with Wonder Woman being a goddess and Israel being a pinnacle for um, some of the main religions in the mm-hmm. world, I think, you know, helps her embody that even more as well, too. Yeah. Well, and then in, and in, in just terms of geography, geographically speaking, um, she's a she's she's got roots in Greek mythology. Right. And it's, she's very Mediterranean. And mm-hmm. so she fits that role much more so than like a British actress um, could have like, she's got a weird accent, but it fits the role. It fits the role of, of wonder woman. It does. Yes. Very um, well. And, and also she, she doesn't necessarily look like the wonder woman of um, the comics to, to a certain extent. Like to me, she's much thinner than the wonder right. woman. Uh, and maybe thin is a, is a, is a, not the word I'm looking for, but definitely um, a different, a, a slight difference in body type. Um, right. But my thing is, is that she makes that she embodies that character. She makes it her own um, for, for what that character is in the film. And you right. can see a lot of the character growth from the first film to the second, as she goes from the very, like very naive, having left Thymuscaria in the first one and coming into the world of men and then really not being able to return to Thymuscaria. So she's lived amongst us for, I guess at this point, 60 plus years um, between the 70. first. Well, Almost just, 70. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the, for the first, the first between the two films that she has grown uh, mm-hmm. a lot in, in that, in that character. So she is much more um, knowledgeable about the ways of, of, of men. And I, and I kind of like, uh, like compare that to the way that, that Hemsworth's Thor um, grew 
across the across not not the, between the first and second film, but especially between the second film and um, like Endgame and how much mm-hmm. his, or even Ragnarok, because really Ragnarok is where he started to find his his personality, and you could see right. that his time on Earth had had influenced that um, right. personality. So there's a lot of positives um, in, in that. Um, and, but like I mentioned the Spider-Man swinging on, on lightning to me, that was a bit cringy. Um, yeah. I'm glad that they gave her the ability to fly. And I really liked the story of, and how they, they attached it to Steve, the, the, the callback about Steve saying it's just wind and right. it's learning how to ride it and things like that. I, I, I enjoy moments like that in the film. Uh, however, to me, I just wish they would have had a better plot device to drive the story um, rather mm-hmm. than like the monkey's paw. Cause it was very deus ex machina yeah. because it, it was the reason that Steve came back. It was how she got her powers is how the villain was created. And right. ultimately it's, it's how the whole thing, you know, goes back to, it comes full circle and goes mm-hmm. back. Um, so, and I want to say, I want to say, oh man, you know, they had three years. They could have done a better job to get this right. But in reality, this movie has been in the can for over a year. And I'm and I'm guessing more so that, that, that it was a matter of like they didn't have time to fully develop it because right. it was so successful in 2017 that they were already shooting this movie by the middle of 2018. Mm-hmm. And it was set to be released last November. Which means, excuse me, which means that they didn't that they rushed through the development of this film rather than being able to take the extra time they had to go back and right and make any changes. I think the one thing that they probably did go back and um, kind of shoehorn in there to me felt like the opening scene was possibly an afterthought. Like, right. um, number one, it was too long. Mm-hmm. And then number two, it felt like it was just there to input action into the story where right. where there I guess maybe producers or the studio thought there wasn't enough in there, um, and I think that's I I think that that's unfortunate because I for the rest of the, the it just it seems disjointed in the film mm-hmm. and I think I get what Patty Jenkins wants to do with a character and the type of movie that she's making but I don't necessarily know that in the history of Wonder Woman comics if if Wonder Woman can be in a, in a, in a much more subdued film where, okay, I'll, I'll make the point. I liked the first half of the film where it seemed like it was going to be in a, like a globe trotting adventure where her and Steve were on the move and they were trying to get ahead of it and solve the problem and, and uncovering clues and whatnot. And then it seems like halfway through the film, they just kind of abandoned that. Right. And, yeah. and that was frustrating because I think like the plot was developing well there. And then they kind of just threw it out for what seemed like a very flat, third act, the the action that they had put into the film during the globe trotting adventure part of it was well done. Right. It was the stuff at the beginning and the end that just seemed a bit out of place. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. Cause I think it felt underdeveloped and rushed and I don't know um, to your point. I don't know if, if part of that was because there was so much uncertainty with what was going on with the DCEU mm-hmm. and that, you know, all the changes have been making with the pandemic and how no one really knows, you know, like how this is all is moving forward. And I don't know if that plays a part into that, but mm-hmm. that's how I definitely felt as well too, is I felt like there were parts that were definitely rushed. Like um, 
Diana and Steve being together and then, you know, then she had to wish him away at that point. Like, I felt like that just wasn't developed enough. And, and they had some really good development points, just like what you said when he talks about how flying is natural and stuff like that. But I feel like just overall, it was either just rushed or wasn't developed enough to when they get to re- resolution, you're just kind of like, eh, okay. But I will say this. I, I did read somebody was actually really critical of Kristen Wiig's character and, and I think her performance even. Mm-hmm. But I thought she actually did a great job. And the I one agree. thing the one thing I didn't agree with this person that they said like, oh, yeah, then at the end of the movie, all of a sudden she becomes a cheetah. There's the big fight. And like, you know, there was no lead up to it. I was just like, I don't know if we watched the same movie or not. But like they had like progressively – so she had progressively different turning points. It's almost mm-hmm. – Almost like a walking Phoenix Joker mm-hmm. where you saw like there are points where he starts turning to the evil side. And you kind of saw that with Kristen as well, which is yeah. part of the storyline. Um, well, it's, sorry, with, it's with, what it's what she gave up too. like as as she fell deeper into like embracing what the monkey's paw had given her. She right. was giving up her what made her her, which was her humanity. Right. And that's why she seemed to devolve into um, the, the full like cheetah form wild animal. Right. And, and I honestly thought that was a great way of how they developed that. So like of all the characters they had, I thought, um, you know, Barbara Minerva, you know, slash cheetah, I thought that was actually the, the best developed character mm-hmm. they had in the movie. So yeah, I don't like Kristen Wiig as a comedian. Like I've never really loved her on Saturday night live, but oh, I really? think that she was, I think that she was great in this film. And I think that they could, probably could have used more of her. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I think they did. I think she did a great job of this. And I think they um, they did a great job writing her part. And and I think making the cheetah aspect a lot more, I don't want to say believable necessarily, but makes a lot more sense than, you know, doing the whole, you know, she takes some sort of potion and she becomes a cheetah because she got injected with cheetah DNA or whatever, you know, something along mm-hmm. those lines. And so I think this really makes sense. And they did a great job with her character overall. And I thought... Who, so whoever said this, I can't remember who it is, but I'm not going to you know mention that. Person yeah, don't bash them. I just, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, and I don't do that. I just, and I'm not even bashing. I'm just saying I don't, I don't really agree with that assessment because I thought they did a great job of building up to that moment. Now I don't know if the person was just saying more of like when she, the moment she actually becomes a physical person of Cheetah. If that was Russ, I'm like maybe, but at the same time, I don't think you want to just put that like right in the middle of the movie because that's really, it's supposed to be metaphorical and, and that that's the pinnacle of like what she's turned into right. as a result of her desire, you know? So can we, can, you know what you did mention something about the big fight scene and I do want to talk about one of the things I dislike the most, but it has nothing to do with the movie and the way that the comic book industry and movie making industry works. And that is that you know, because the studio, because Warner Brothers owns all of these characters, Disney owns all of Marvel and most the movie rights to all their characters, they mm-hmm. can essentially do whatever they want to with those characters in the films without much consideration for the people who created them. And one of the things that stood out to me, and I'm and I'm passionate about this, is is her the the armor costume, the armor mm-hmm. that she wears at the end of the film was designed by Alex Ross for um for the the graphic novel the series the limited series he did called Kingdom Come uh, back right. in the in the late 90s and it's beautiful like not only is the design beautiful but the way that they put it into the film um it's like its film representation is amazing however mm-hmm. like you know this this is big business and and Alex Ross I don't even know if they gave him a like uh like a credit, like a, an acknowledgement or anything. Maybe I'm, I'm sure they didn't pay him for it, 
much right. less like send over a fruit basket and says, Hey man, thanks for your contribution to this, um, this great movie. But like, I think that that, that crap needs to stop. Like, right. I think that, I think that when, when they, when they write a script and it says, you know, script written by so-and-so. And I think, I think that they need to start acknowledging writers that says and story by like a story by credit. Because right. I mean, shoot, half of the MCU is, um, half of the MCU now is, was the, it was brainchild of Mark Millar and the, um, and the, and the, the ultimate universe, like the, with the ultimates and the ultimate X-Men and even like down to right. Nick Fury being, um, Samuel L. Jackson. Right. Like, I think that that needs to be, that doesn't need to be like a, a footnote at the end of the credits. That needs to be like screenplay by story, you know, such and such. Right. And I think that, I think that they would have done, you know, with all of the bad press that DC specifically has gotten over the years for forgetting about their creators, you know, with Schuster and Bill Siegel, Finger, Bill Finger <laughs> yeah. um, that you'd think that they would want to be more magnanimous with the people that have got them to where they are. Right. And I think that this was an opportunity that they swung and missed on. I'm just I'm just going to put it out there. I think you've got to you've got to give credit to the people who created this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I think. You know, I I wholeheartedly agree with you because I always try if I if I use someone's um, work that even if it's under um, you know CC or or um, uh, common um, common you know common license I forget what it's called mm-hmm. a Creative Commons sorry Creative Commons yeah yeah if it's under Creative Commons like I still try to credit people because I think that just helps with letting people know you know who who did the work even though it's not required of it like right. I try to do that um, I think. It'd be interesting to see if we could ever get someone on the show to maybe who's been in the publishing industry or or have done. Maybe Brian Hill could give us some insight since we talked to him before. Maybe we can bring him back at some point. Um, maybe give us some insight on if they do that, if there's any legal like um, if that opens up any doors uh, in terms of the legal aspect of it. Right. Because I, I think I, I'm always of the opinion that tried to see the good in everybody that everyone, you know, start with like assuming that people are good. Mm-hmm. And I, my guess is that maybe they want to do that, but for whatever reason, because of everything else that happens, maybe if like once they do that, even just like do a credit is that, well, does that mean now like there's monetary things that they have to put in that they weren't, you know, counting for like how far down the road does that go? Um, and so I, I don't know. I, I wish it was one of those things. Like I don't I agree necessarily with you. know I, that I don't necessarily know that they ever need to go to, like a percentage or whatnot, because I don't necessarily think that that in this case that his that his um, contribution was so much like so important that he needed a, a cut of the film. But acknowledgement and a fruit basket, I mean, might right. might be nice, right? I don't. I mean, maybe they've done that. I, I don't know. I, I just know that if, you know once you get the name in the movie, mm-hmm. I, I know there there could be things that just kind of opens up in terms of like, well, what does that mean for not just that movie, but like things later on? I'm sure, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of reasons that, you know, it's not great reasons. I'm sure people would love to do that without having the expectation of like, well, since you gave me credit for that, like I should probably also get this. I'm not saying everyone's like that, no, but I'm sure well, that, and- that might potentially open the door for something like that. And and this is just, again, I know we talked about <laughs> in the previous episode, not speculating anything, but I think, I wonder if like people will, will want to do that, but there's like things, you know, it's always the, some legal reason, some legal jargon that prevents them from doing it. Yeah. You know, that they always have to kind of protect their, 
I give you an example because I just watched this movie on uh, the other day, but I can give you a parallel. There's a really great film called The Dressmaker that stars uh, Kate Winslet. And in the film, she's a she's a dressmaker, moves to a small um, Australian town and starts kind of like upend the status quo because she's she's designing and creating dresses for all the women um, who didn't have access to like couture fashion before. Right. And at the end of the film, it says there's a there's a thing that says such so and so's character, this character's dress is created by. Mm -hmm. And then it was the costume designer for the film. Right. They like put that up front because it's such an integral part of the film. So I do think that it it can be done, but I think that I think, but I, I do think that it's something that the the industry as a whole needs to be more aware of. Right. And boy, did we slip down that rabbit. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, that's all right. <laughs> uh, hey, so we 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 both agree that we 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 kind of liked Wonder Woman eighty four. Didn't really love it. We've we've put our. Um, our two cents out there. Uh, but uh, it's, it's worth a watch. If you haven't seen it yet, make sure that you can, you go check it out in theaters or you can catch it on uh, HBO max before uh, January 24th. I think is when it expires. If you don't have HBO max, you can get on there and check that out. Hey, but that'll do it for another episode of the caption life. We hope that you enjoyed listening to this one. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button on whatever major podcast platform you listen to. And you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Caption Life. If you like what we're doing, give us a shout out, tag us in your story. Uh, you can also visit us at podpage.com backslash the Caption Life to find out more about us and where you can find our podcast. Until next time, see ya. See ya.